Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in front of you. It's these black pew Bibles, or sometimes it's beneath you, depending on which pew you're sitting in. Uh, but we are looking in the book of Exodus, verses, chapter 4, verses 10 through 17. So if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus four, ten through 17. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. And he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. There is this uh, very popular hymn uh, sung in Christian churches titled, Trust and Obey. Uh, children in the church learn it at a very young age because it's a pretty simple song to learn. The refrain is really easy. And parents are desperate to teach the song because they would like some of its truths to start rubbing off on their children. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the song, the, song go, the refrain, at least, of the song goes like this. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. The tune is sweet. It is very simple. But it belies the difficulty of actually living up to the message of this hymn. Because to trust and obey is no simple matter. Christian and non-Christian, if we're honest with ourselves, there seems to be all sorts of other ways than to trust and obey. Because there are times when it's hard to believe that God is going to go with us. We're all tempted from time to time to think that God is just asking too much of us. Some of you know that feeling all too well. Uh, you, you think to yourself, God, I... I can't trust and obey. I don't know if I can trust and obey with feeling the way I do day after day after day. 
Or, Lord, how can I possibly trust and obey your design for men and women and sexuality when you've made me this way? Lord, how can I trust your calling on me as a brother or sister in Christ and obey you to gather with God's people when we're in the middle of a pandemic? Sometimes when God calls us, we'd much rather not pick up the phone. And so as we look to our passage this morning, my main goal is that you and I might feel more trust in God and obey him in our lives. That we might trust and obey even when we feel unable or fearful or messed up. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 through 17. And in these last verses, we come to the end of Moses' encounter with the God of the burning bush. Moses, at 80 years old, has been called by God to defy Pharaoh and to bring Israel out of Egypt. And thus far, we've seen Moses raise three not altogether unreasonable objections before God and this calling to this mission that God places in his hand. Earlier in chapter 3, Moses asks, who am I? Who am I to be the one to shepherd these people? I'm a lowly shepherd. I'm 80 years old. I'm a washed up Egyptian Hebrew. Who am I to do this? And God says, it doesn't matter who you are, Moses. It matters that I'm with you. But again, Moses says, then who are you? If it all depends on you, what is your name? And God responds and says, I am who I am, meaning I will be with you, meaning I will be there, meaning I am everlasting, meaning I am self-existent. And once more, Moses objects and says, but what about them? They're not going to listen to me. Again, God patiently answers Moses, they will listen to you, and here are some signs. But the longer the conversation kind of continues, the more obvious it becomes that Moses simply doesn't want to go. His final two objections that we see this morning in these verses show that when it comes right down to it, he wants God to simply send somebody else. So I do think there are two encouragements from this passage this morning. First, it's to... Trust God's calling for you. And second, it's to obey God's calling for you. So first, trust God. Trust God. Look at verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And essentially, Moses says, God, this is a great idea, this whole thing about, you know, getting Israel out of Egypt with you 100%. But here's the problem. I'm just no good when it comes to speaking. And in fact, Moses seems to provide an element of complaint. He says, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, meaning, God, you haven't done anything about my, my speech, my eloquence. There's been no supernatural change in, in, in my mouth so that I can speak and do all these things that you're calling me to. So you better slow your roll, God. 
Now, on the one hand, we can understand Moses' apprehension here. He's imagining that he's going to stand before the people of Israel that he hasn't stood before in 40 years. And he's going to stand before Pharaoh and his entire court. And he needs to be able to come up with quick counter arguments, doesn't he? He needs to, he feels like he needs to have the gift of gab. He needs to have some witty repartee. These are going to be intense negotiations. And at the same time, it's hard to be too sympathetic with Moses. Because he's literally standing before a burning bush, before the great I am. And he's carrying on quite a conversation with him, with a series of objections. Now, there's some speculation as to what Moses meant when he complained about his inability to speak. One scholar says Moses' response is not pointing to a physical problem, but it's an objection that is with some kind of, it's a cultural objection. It's to show an exaggerated humility. Okay, it's, so this argument is kind of like, you know, what would happen if, if my mom prepared a big di- dinner for me? And I say, oh, mom, this is so good. And she says, oh, no, no. It doesn't have enough flavor. But she would actually be appalled if I started dumping soy sauce over everything, right? So same way, Moses is giving a kind of ritual protest. After all, in Acts 7.22, it says that when Moses was in Egypt, he was mighty in deeds and words. Now, others would say that his problem is psychological. It's been 40 years since he left Egypt. He's an old man now. He's just not a public speaker for a time. Maybe he was eloquent in the past. Maybe when he was at Pharaoh U, he could speak really well. But now he has some honest self-doubt about his abilities. And still others point to a genuine medical, physical speech impediment. Maybe in these 40 years, he's gotten a little bit older. He's developed a stammer. Maybe there's... Maybe he cut himself and on his mouth and there's like a lisp. We don't know. Because translated literally, Moses says, Oh Lord, I am not a man of words. I am heavy of mouth and tongue. Meaning, God, some people's tongues are just light and free and they can just speak and it's easy. But for me, it's like lead is in my mouth. It's like an anvil that's just in there. And in the end, we cannot be absolutely sure about Moses' complaint, but I do think there is truth behind what he's saying, whether it's psychological or physical. It's unlikely he's merely giving some exaggerated kind of protest here, exaggerated humility given God's response. Look at what the way God responds in verse 11. He says, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You see, Moses' assumption was this. God always uses people with special abilities, special natural abilities to accomplish his will. But God says to Moses, Moses, he says, is it not I, the Lord, Yahweh, the I am? Moses, the God who you're talking to, who has made all these promises of success to you, I am who I am. I am from everlasting to everlasting, and I created everything. I created the human body, mind, and emotions. I designed it all, and that's not the only thing. I continue to create every single person as I see fit. Whether they're mute, 
or deaf or seeing or blind. So Moses, you think you can't speak? You think you got a problem with stuttering? You think you have a stammer? You think your, your accent isn't quite right or you can't get the words out? Well, God says, I made you that way. Now, clearly God's not referring to moral failings and fallen desires. This isn't saying God made me a certain sinful inclination, so I should continue to sin. That's not what it's about. It's not talking about desires affected by the fall. This is not a verse that says that you cannot get braces or you can't fix the cleft palate or get physical therapy. But as one pastor puts it, this is an important word in our gift-obsessed, looks-obsessed, skills-obsessed, achievement-obsessed world. God says to Moses and says to us, I put your DNA together. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Given all the important caveats about the fall and how things are not always the way they should be, yet in God's sovereign providence, he made you an introvert. He made you with that handicap. He made you, he gave you your gender. He gave you that extra chromosome. And sometimes I think about the way I'm created, and I've wondered to myself, God, why did you create me to have certain mannerisms when I speak? Or God, why couldn't I be a better pastor or a better communicator of your word? Or if only I didn't have angry eyebrows, people wouldn't think I'm yelling at them all the time or whatever it is. Maybe you can make me taller more charismatic, a better and natural speaker, then I would be useful in your hands. And I'm sure some of you look at your abilities and talents and think, I can't do it. Whatever God is calling me to, I, I, I can't do it. I'm weak. I don't have anything to offer. But look at what God says in verse 12. He says, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. In other words, God says, I will be strong in your weakness, Moses. It doesn't depend on your eloquence. I am with you. We are prone to place far too much reliance on natural ability and not nearly enough on supernatural assistance. Listen to 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Time and time again, God has used less than ideal skills and abilities for his own glory. I mean, we have only to think about Johnny Erickson Tata quadriplegic at the age of 17 and how her gospel ministry continues to be a blessing to so many people. We can only think about Fanny Crosby, blinded at a young age, who wrote the words, all the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Or we just think about the Apostle Paul. 
who in 2 Corinthians admits, my speech is of no account. Who says, I'm unskilled in speaking. And yet he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the, unsurpass- that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Not to us. In other words, God's aim is that his own power through the gospel be honored, not us. Which means that if you feel average, I don't know if many of you do. Maybe some of you do. Or maybe you feel average or maybe you feel less than average in your sense of fitness to tell the gospel or to, or to do whatever calling that God has for you in your life. You are the person that God is looking for. A clay pot. Because it's not going to be glitzy intellect. Sorry to disappoint so many of you. It's not glitzy intellect. It's not glitzy eloquence, nor the glitzy beauty of strength or cultural cleverness. Take heart, ordinary Christian. Take heart. You are appointed precisely in your ordinariness for the work of God. Listen to this wonderful quote from John Calvin. He says, God chooses men as his ministers, although they are in themselves good for nothing. I mean, (laughs) Calvin says good for nothing. He forms and prepares them for their work, he says. So be encouraged. You may be good for nothing, but it's good enough for God to use. Good enough for God to draw up a play in his divine playbook for you to be used for his glory. Trust God in his calling for you because he has made you and he will be with you. Second, not only are we to trust God's call, we are to obey God's call. Uh, God has been very patient so far with Moses and all of his objections. So in verse 12, he says to Moses, now, therefore, what? Go. The time for talking is over. It's time to take action. This is the third time he has told Moses to go. Chapter 3, verse 16. He says to him, go and gather the elders of Israel and say to them, verse Uh, 18, he says, go to the king of Egypt. Go, go, go. And Moses is now out of excuses. He's absolutely checkmated. He's got nothing left. And what does he say? He says, oh my Lord, please send someone else. In his commentary on Exodus, Phil Reich entitled this section, uh, here am I, send someone else. And that's essentially what Moses is doing. He's saying, I hear you. I hear all they've said. I'm, I'm glad that you're sovereign, Lord. I think it's a great plan to get people out of Egypt. Now send anybody, just not me. Moses says, I can't earlier. And now he says, I won't. He's not even trying to come up with, come up with excuses anymore. He's done with that. And now he's in sin. When Isaiah was summoned to the throne room, he complained, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And yet he went, and he did what God called him to do. And Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 1.6, says, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Yet he went and spoke. But in the vein of Jonah, Moses, out of unbelief, out of a vote of no confidence in the Lord, simply tenders his resignation and says, I quit. Up to this point, he's had doubts. He's brought those doubts to the Lord. Now he gives up on God completely and crosses the boundary between humility and disobedience. 
And verse 14 says, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Now, I don't know how he knew that the anger of the Lord was there. I don't know if the bush all of a, all of a sudden went whoosh and it kind of got brighter. I don't know if there was a long silence before God said anything. A passage doesn't tell us, but God's anger was kindled. And commentator Victor Hamilton points out that this is the first time in Scripture God is said to get angry at anybody. The book of Genesis never says that God's anger flares up at Adam or Abraham or Jacob because of something they have done. Even the flood of Noah's day comes from God's grieving heart and not from an angry heart. We typically associate God's righteous anger with horrific sins, genocide, rape, molestation, murder. But notice that hesitancy to obey also inflames God's anger. Later in Exodus, Moses records that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But what we see here is that God's patience has a limit. It is possible to provoke the Lord to anger by our hesitancy to obey. Because it's one thing to struggle with faith, it's another to scorn all that God has promised and revealed. You notice even in God's anger, the merciful and sovereign provision of God. He says to Moses, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. I know because I am Yahweh and I created his mouth too. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And it will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. And he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. We should pause to appreciate God's merciful sovereignty towards Moses right here. I mean, you have to think about it. Egypt is hundreds of miles away from Midian. Moses has not seen Aaron for 40 years. And yet God put it on Aaron's heart at the right time to head out to Moses to help him. God put it all in motion even before he met God at the burning bush. This is how our sovereign God works. He puts pieces in place to fulfill prayers that we haven't even prayed yet. And Aaron would come and be the mouthpiece of Moses. He would be Moses' side. He'd be at his side to partner in ministry. And God says, we're going to play the telephone game. I will guide you. You will speak. Thus says the Lord to Aaron and the message. It won't get garbled. It won't get messed up because I will be there. And I will make sure it will work. I'll give you a brother. I'll give you a staff. A sign of my authority. Now go. Now, some wonder whether God's decision to bring in Aaron was somehow God's plan B, meaning that Moses acting alone was his first and best choice. But since, God, since Moses was disobedient, God adapted his plans to accommodate for Moses' kind of weaknesses. Uh, I have my doubts to that case because I think the plan has always been for there to be a plurality of leadership for Moses, as we saw you know, a couple weeks ago when we were looking at this passage in Exodus. And second, as a principle, God does not change. 
Whatever he does is always his first and best intention, even if it should expose our weaknesses. God is absolutely sovereign, and it is clear that Aaron is no divine afterthought, but an essential part of the Lord's plan. The question that we're all wondering, of course, is how do we know what God's calling is for us? Isn't it? It's easy to see here that Moses heard God's calling, it was very clear, and he clearly disobeyed. He did not trust, he did not obey. God spoke directly to him at a burning bush, but we don't have a burning bush experience. He explicitly told him what to do. He said, Moses called out his name. But what about us? What is God's calling for us that we must trust and obey? Certainly the most obvious way we know God is God's calling for us is to read the scriptures and to know what it says inside of it and what he tells us. Now, for some of you this morning, God is calling you to faith and repentance. God is calling you to be saved through his son, Jesus Christ. You might be, you might be on the fence about God. You might have attended all our fundamentals of the faith, not once, but twice. You sat here week after week, and yet you put forward objection after objection to God. Others of you have gone to church your whole life, but you've merely drifted along, going with the flow, and you've kind of pushed off, pushed off the decision. Oh, later, oh, later, I'll make this decision for the Lord. Oh, dear friend, why do you delay to trust and obey? He commands all people everywhere to repent because his patience will not be forever. He has fixed a day on which his anger will be kindled in a far greater degree than it was at the burning bush. And he will judge the world in righteousness. But the good news is that the one and only God in his great love became a man in Jesus. And he lived a perfect life. He was not a reluctant redeemer like Moses. He was the son that never said no. Even in the deepest throes of his anguish, he said, not my will be done, but yours be done. And so he died on the cross. And in doing so, he took on himself the punishment for sins of all those who would ever turn and trust in him. And he resurrected on the third day, showing that God's wrath has been fulfilled and that Christ's work on the cross was finally accomplished. And and he calls you, and he calls you today to repent of your sins, to trust in Christ and know the joys of following him. Sometimes trusting and obeying, you think, oh, this obeying part. But it is a joyful obedience. Will you trust and obey? Will you trust Christ alone for your forgiveness? Don't say, I can't. Oh, he wouldn't want me and what I have in my baggage. That's not the gospel. Don't say, I won't. Because today can be the day of your salvation. If you are a Christian, your calling also is very clear. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Uh, in whatever station he has placed you, whether mother or, or manager, or if you're a daughter or a 
direct report. God calls you to be holy, to seek first his kingdom and righteousness and obey his word. Now you might say, well, what about all those subjective callings? Like, am I called to marry this person? (laughs) Am I called to take this job or to go to this school? Or am I called to be a missionary or to serve here in church? Here's what I would say to that. Take time to search the scriptures. Take time to pray. In wisdom, look for opportunities. Look for open doors. Look for needs. And listen. Listen and open yourself up to counsel from others. So that perhaps you will get a strong sense of knowing that God wants you to do something. But wherever God's calling might be, trust him. And obey him. Perhaps a clear application from our text is that wherever you are, God calls you to use your mouth, if at all possible. In the church, in your neighborhoods, in your places of work. I I, I wonder what those 45 minutes are like between service and Sunday school. And what that's like for you. Perhaps you see someone you don't know at church and your first thought is, oh, I don't know them, but I'm glad they're here. They're here at this church. And you know what? I should come and I should welcome them as Christ has welcomed me. But then your second thought creeps in. What if they don't appreciate it? Uh, What if uh, they kind of want to keep a low profile? What if... I screw things up. God, I, I don't know what to say. I don't have the gift of gab. I, 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 I might get off a hello, but I'm kind of awkward. And then the last thought is this. Ah, there's Ben. There's Kevin. Oh, God, send them. They'll do it. They're sitting in the front row. But we must have faith in the God who made the mouth so that we might dare use it in all our weakness for his glory and the deliverance of others. People in the church need words spoken to them. They do. Of encouragement. They need you to sing to them. They need you to pray with them. They need to hear your amens in prayer. I do. What's more, those outside the church are waiting for the witness of our mouths. Don't say, I'm too young, I'm just a youth, what can I say? Don't say, I'd love to share the gospel with that, you know, that Hindu friend of mine. Or that agnostic friend of mine, but I'm just not equipped. I I, I don't know, I'm just not qualified. I'm not a good candidate. Brothers and sisters, if you know enough to be saved, you know enough to share the gospel. No matter what shortcomings you think besiege you. God does not need an orator. He needs a reporter. That's it. Can you do that? Can you simply be a reporter and report to them and testify to others about the grace of God? What's important is not your athletic ability or how smart you are or how good you are with other people. Our inability suggests nothing about God's inability. So trust and obey, comfort, counsel, and correct that brother or sister. 
tell children and neighbors and family the life-giving news of Jesus Christ. Because who has made man's mouth? Therefore, go. God will be with you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, this passage that we've been going through over the past several weeks regarding the burning bush. What an encouragement for us it is to know that you take the weak things in the world, the foolish things, for your glory, to accomplish your purposes. You do not take us with all our strengths, but you use all our weaknesses that you might receive more glory for the work that is done, that it is more evident that you, that your hand is at work. So Lord, we pray that we would trust you and obey you because all the way you continue to lead us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.